over and over again. It's uh, mentioned about 28 times in the book. And uh, anybody remember what the other one is? Pop quiz every Sunday, right? Under the sun, under the sun. Solomon describes all that he's observed under the sun and how it all seems meaningless, just a bunch of nothing going nowhere. And that's exactly what we're left with if we try to imagine life and a world without the God who made it. We can look around, we can see things that are out of place, things are not as they should be, but we can still smile because we know the God who made everything and we know his plans for the future. The sermon this morning is called God and Guarantees, Uncertainty About the Future. Let's pick up where we left off last week, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been already done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all of which I toiled, and I used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity." So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, as we've said many times already this morning, for the truth of your word. We thank you that we can have assurance, that we can have hope, because you, God, have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word and by your spirit. And God, we can't think of anything we would want or need more. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with me now, move me out of the way, speak to your people the truth of your word. Let it take root in each one of us for your glory 
and for the benefit of us, our families, and those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. I was, uh, I was talking to my dad this past week about his business, and um, I don't know if you know, but he's really good at fixing stuff. He, he can fix just about anything. And one of the things he specializes in fixing is convertible tops for cars, because those things wear out way before the car ever does, and to replace them is really, really expensive. And there's a lot of people that say you can't, it, it can't be fixed, but he can fix it. And I told him, I said, Dad, you need to be charging way more for this, right? And he goes, well, you know, I guess I could if I could guarantee the repair. And I said, that's a great idea. Why don't you do that? You know, do you have like a lot of them come back? Is it not hold up? And he goes, no, that's not it at all. It's just, you know, you never know what could happen. And I said, Dad, you, but you're not, you're not guaranteeing that, that nothing bad will happen. You're just guaranteeing you'll make it right if it does. That's how guarantees work. That's God's guarantee. It's not a guarantee that nothing bad will happen. It's a guarantee he will make it right. In this life, under the sun bad things do happen. They have happened and they will happen. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we're insulated from the hurts this world gives us. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer tragedy in this life. It just means justice will be served and the righteous will be vindicated because that's what Christ came to do. It's guaranteed. But we still have a lot of uncertainty about what will happen tomorrow and the next day and next year and when our kids grow up and what kind of world it'll be when they're raising families of their own. And it's easy to allow that uncertainty to dominate your thinking, isn't it? And it's suffocating. It keeps you from living today. Charles Spurgeon once said, anxiety doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows, it only empties today of its strength. It keeps you from living today. The main idea of the message this morning is this, if you hold Jesus in your heart today, you can know he holds your tomorrow. It's a guarantee, not that nothing will go wrong, but that he makes it right. It's not a promise that your life will be easier. It's a promise that he will make your life good. And good is always better than easy. A good life, being redeemed by Jesus and reconciled to God, being empowered by his Holy Spirit to live a life that honors him, is infinitely better than an easy life. The one comes with a guarantee that even if everything falls apart, it will be renewed. God restores what the locusts have eaten. The other comes with no such promise. It, things may run smoothly for a while and work is advertised, but eventually it's going to fall apart and you will eat the cost. There's a saying that for the believer, this world under the sun is the closest to hell they'll ever know. And it's the closest to heaven the unbeliever will ever know. Have you heard that saying before? No? That this world under the sun, with all the good and the bad, is the closest to hell the believer will ever experience. And it's the closest to heaven 
the unbeliever will ever experience. Which is better? Which, which scenario would you describe as the good life? I guess we have to be careful how we are defining things like good and better, though, right? I don't mean easy. It doesn't even have to make sense. It doesn't even have to make sense. You don't need to see the end from the beginning in order to know that the path you're on is the right way, that you're, you're going in the right direction. You know, if I leave here today and I start traveling west, eventually I'll hit the Pacific Ocean. I, I, don't, I don't even need to know what it looks like or what I'll pass along the way. What I do know and can be certain of is it's west, and if I keep going west, that's where I'll end up, right? Simply knowing you're on the right path settles some of the anxiety about what the future holds. At least it should. First point for you this morning. Follow Christ even when you can't see where he's leading you. Follow Christ even when you can't see where he's leading you. Verses 12 through 17. Solomon's kind of in a in between a rock and a hard place, as they say. In the last sermon, we saw he couldn't find wisdom, uh, or he couldn't find meaning in wisdom or in, in sensuality or in pleasure. And now it says, verse 12, he turns to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And in Hebrew, when you consider something, you give your full attention to it. Now, he's focused. He's going to school on the subjects of wisdom and madness and folly, and he's expecting answers. He's trying to get to the bottom of this. He considers wisdom and madness and folly. And he figures, you know, maybe, maybe these people we all think are crazy aren't so crazy after all. Like, maybe they're on to something. And he thinks, you know, maybe these people that are lazy and just kind of drift and float through life, maybe they've got it figured out. Maybe they know something I don't. Or maybe people who dedicate their lives to acquiring skills and knowledge and wisdom and apply themselves in life, maybe they actually do have it right. And what he decides in verse 13 is that it is better to be wise and skillful. That's where he lands. It is better. It's not easier, but it's certainly better. He knows there's no ultimate gain to be had or gotten in being wise and skillful, but it's at least better than being dumb and lazy, right? The wise person has eyes in his head, he says, and the fool walks in darkness. There's more gain in light than darkness. That's where he lands, but here's the problem. Here's what discourages him. What happens to the fool is going to happen to me too. Verse 15. The wise lives a life of wisdom and dies just like the fool. So what do I get for being so wise? What permanent advantage do I have? There's not one. The wise and the fool both earn the same reward. They both meet the same end, death. Death is a thief. Marinate on that for a minute. The million and one ways you know that to be true. Death is a thief. Christ conquered death. That's, that's one way you could summarize the book of Ecclesiastes. You could really summarize the whole Bible that way. It's worth remembering those seven words 
or writing them down somewhere so you can remind yourself when life gets scary. Death is a thief. And you're right to be angry with what it's taken from you. You're right to be sad about what you know it will absolutely take from you that it hasn't already. But Christ conquered death. You're right to be excited about what that means for you. Man wasn't made to die. Sin brought death. Christ died for sin and rose again from the dead. And even though we die like he did, we will rise again like he did. But even that being the case, is there really even a point to being wise or doing good in this life if we're just going to die anyway? That's what's, that's what's gnawing at Solomon. There's not exactly a one-to-one correlation between the good you do and the good you get in life. That's not news to any one of us, I hope. And that's the jagged little pill Solomon's struggling to swallow. It's, it's not always if this, then that. should be that way. So it makes sense. It's not how it works in a fallen world, not all the time. It seems right that the wise should be rewarded and the fool thrown down. It seems unfair that what happens to the fool happens to the wise also. If I did everything right, why should I suffer the same fate as the fool who gave no care or mind to any of it? What's the point in being wise? Why should I be good if it doesn't even really matter in the end? And you remember Solomon wrote most of the book of Proverbs. You know, and he says things like this. He says, whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. But they both die. Here's another one. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. That is not always the case, is it? That's not what Solomon's observed. And it's frustrating. You know, we've got to remember the Proverbs, y'all, the wisdom sayings in the Bible are statements that are generally true, but they're not always universally applicable. You understand what I mean? There's no guarantee that wise and righteous living will make life easier. But it is better And generally speaking, someone who is willing to work hard and to to bring value to others in this life is going to have some advantages over the person who just sits around thinking the world owes him something. And we can see that, generally, generally speaking. Generally speaking, if you train up a child in the way he should go when he is old, he will not depart from it. Maybe that doesn't work out in every instance. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it as a parent. You see, so there's a way we can see is better than another. There's a way which is good. And that it's good should be good enough. That's the point. That we can recognize this way is good should be good enough. Just knowing that you're going the right way. Just knowing we are following Jesus should be good enough, even if we can't tell exactly where he's leading us. We know wherever it is, it's good. 
So that's what I mean when I say if you hold Jesus in your heart today, you can know he has your tomorrow. We don't have to be panicked and frenzied about all the stuff along the way. And there will be stuff along the way. Some good and some bad. Just because you don't know what to expect or you're afraid of what you might find doesn't mean that you shouldn't keep pursuing him, that you shouldn't keep moving in that same direction. If you know that's, that's where you're supposed to be, you can know where you'll end up. You know, what's the alternative? You think about that for a second. Trust yourself. Go your own way. Take detours and, and just do your own thing. Carve your own path and leave God out of it. That's worse. Ask Solomon. He's been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. And he hated life. That's what he said, verse 17. He, he did it that way. And he hated life. He was disgusted by it because he realized it just didn't seem fair. You can get really bitter if you start trying to look too far down the path, expecting to see something that's worth you taking the next step. That's what keeps a lot of people from stepping. That's why a lot of people leave church. They thought nothing would ever break if they just went this way, but that's not how guarantees work. Guarantees don't promise things won't break. They promise to make things right when they do. You know, one of my favorite Puritans, uh, John Flavel, once said, as Christians, we're not promised safe seas, we're promised safe harbors. That's the promise Jesus gives us. A bumpy ride to a glorious destination. The question is, do you trust him? If you do, follow him. Just follow him. Don't look so far down the path trying to determine whether or not you should take the next step based on what you think you see or don't see. Take another step because you know you're on the right path and you trust his promise. The path is good because he says it's good, not because you're sure it's safe. The wise man dies, so does the fool. That's where we are. And yeah, death is a thief. But so what? Christ conquered death. It's clearly better than to be wise than to be a fool. And if I know I'm following Jesus, I know the path I'm on is good, even if I'm not sure what to expect. And, you know, if, if, um, and I'd imagine this one of those kind of blanket things. I'm sure everybody can relate to this on some level. If you find yourself sort of paralyzed with fear and uncertainty in this season of life right now because you know you've got some big decisions to make and you know that whatever decision you make will have consequences down the line, I'd encourage you to pray for trust and not certainty. A wise man once told me that. Still tells me. Told you all this morning already. But the first time he told me that, I was in a place where I had no idea which way to go. All I wanted in the world was clarity. But what I needed was trust. 
Trust that no matter how things look, I have Jesus today. More importantly, he has me. And because he does, I can know, I can trust he has my tomorrow. That has to be enough. Point number two, enjoy the work. We move to work here in this next section. Enjoy the work God has given you for no other reason than God has given it to you for you to enjoy. I see a few pins moving, so it's a long one. I'll give it to you again. Enjoy the work God has given you for no other reason than he has given it to you for you to enjoy. Verses 18 through 26. So Solomon's just concluded it's better, be, better to be wise than a fool, even though they both die in the end anyway. And so he turns to his work and his skill, and he gets bummed out again. Because not only do, do the wise man and the fool both die, but sometimes, he says in verse 21, a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. He says... This also is vanity and a great evil. It just doesn't seem fair that I work hard for stuff and some idiot gets my stuff. I don't like it. There's no meaning or ultimate gratification found in wisdom or in pleasure. The wise man dies as well as the fool, but it's at least better to have skills and to use them, he's decided. And so what he does is he tries to just keep his head down and enjoy the work that he has in front of him, but he can't. Because he knows it just gets handed to somebody who doesn't deserve it, who didn't earn it. And it grates on his nerves. He can't even enjoy his work, verse 23. For all his days, he says, are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. And you know what? If we're honest, they should be. If all we're doing is is working for our own selfish gain, it should eat at you and keep you up at night. It's not what it's there for. Can't have it. Doesn't belong to you. It's not for you. It's for him. And so all we're doing is striving for our own selfish gain. It should keep us up at night, like it says in verse 23. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Here's the kicker, though. Read verse 24 again. He says, There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? This is one of Solomon's little revelations that he comes across in in the book. It, It reminds us that Solomon knows who God is. This is a reflection back on his life where he's done some things right, he's done some things wrong. He he tried it his way, he tried it God's way, and here he realizes he was missing it. It's not about gaining things and keeping things under the sun. Life isn't even about us at all. It's about God. And God has given him work for him to enjoy. So he should enjoy it because God means for him to enjoy it. That's why. Not because it's my favorite thing in the world to do. Not because I make a million dollars at it. But because God intends for me to find joy in the blessing he has given me from his hand he says. That's why I can enjoy it. I can find joy there. And if it's not on the surface, 
and I don't recognize it, that's not his problem. It's not the work's fault. That's my problem. There's something I'm not getting. That's what Solomon's showing us. He didn't get it. He shouldn't enjoy his work because it makes him better than anyone else. Right? We shouldn't enjoy our work because we get to keep everything that it affords us. Solomon said we should enjoy it because God intends for us to. And then there's this contrast. He says in verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He is given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So you see what he's saying there? Before he was complaining about working hard and someone else getting his stuff, someone who, who, who didn't work hard and didn't deserve it ends up with it. That's true, but now he sees something else is equally true. The sinner gathers and collects only for it to be given to the one who pleases God. And that's not fair either. So let them be the ones who are frustrated. That's what he figures. To the one who pleases God, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. If we recognize God is the source of our joy and not the stuff or what the stuff can buy us, if we recognize that God is the source of our joy, we won't be so quick to complain. Life is not just unfair for the righteous, it's unfair for the sinner too. It's upside down for him. The advantage the righteous has is that he can know that his work, even his work itself, is a gift from the hand of God, and he has been given the ability to enjoy it because God intends for him to enjoy it. Not for it to be a means to enjoyment. It's a gift in and of itself to be able to take the gifts that God's given you, the talents that he's given you, and to put them into practice, to see the work of your hands, to know that the knowledge that you possess and have been given has enriched someone else's life. To go to bed tired at night is a gift from God. You can enjoy the work God has given you for no other reason than he has given it to you for you to enjoy. And summarizing this point, here's a few things to notice. The contrast we're seeing here is the difference between meaningless work and meaningful work. Work that strives for earthly gain and work that comes from a heavenly contentment. What we, what we learn too here is that the, the most basic things in life are sweet and good, aren't they? Food, drink, work, the most basic stuff of life. It's only when we try to get something out of them they weren't intended to give us that we spoil them. They're never bad in and of themselves. They're gifts from God for us to enjoy. But we mess them up when we try to milk them for something they don't make that only God can give us. We should be content with the blessings that he has given us to enjoy in this life rather than considering all of the means to some greater blessing. That's the idea. That's what gets us frustrated and hung up on the whole what's fair and unfair thing. 
So let me urge you, don't trade contentment for covetousness. It's got a name. We all struggle with it. No one's immune, okay? There's contentment, there's, there's coveting. Contentment's free. It's given to us. We can have it. Coveting's expensive. It'll cost you your joy. And that's actually what's at the root of your anxiety about the future, wanting something more than what comes to you from the hand of God. That's what it is. What comes to you from him is objectively good, and it's meant to be enjoyed. It can be enjoyed without fear of where it will lead or how it all pans out in the end. And the guarantee you hold, if you are a Christian, is that your future is certain. It's it's not certain it's going to be easy. But it's certain that it's going to be good. And here's something to consider, maybe something for a conversation in your, your groups this afternoon. All your tomorrows are planned out for you already. Are you okay with that? I mean, isn't that better than than thinking it's all on you? That's where all of your anxiety about being uncertain about the future comes from. It's all on me. If I just take this wrong step here, it's all going to come crashing down. Maybe if that step just lands on the path over and over again, you can know you're going in the right direction. There's going to be some good, there's going to be some bad. Isn't it better, too, knowing that you can eat and drink and enjoy acquiring skills and applying yourself to your work simply because God intends for you to do those things however long you last, however many days you're given, here under the sun? in this brief little vapor of a life that we've talked about in the past couple of weeks, isn't it better knowing that you can, you can enjoy the things that he's given you and that you're meant to? If you just settle down. Stop stressing about everything that's going to happen tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, like Foster was talking about from Matthew 6 this morning. Jesus says, look around. Look around at the, wor- the world that God has made. Aren't things, am I I, I not taking care of them? Are you not much more important than they? And stop working yourself up into a lather. Yes, death is a thief. We're all worried about that. And I've said this before, you know, it's like there's this, this, this roadblock in all of our lives, death. And, and we don't know how, how far up ahead it is. Could be just around the bend. Might not be for, for miles down the road, but we know it's there. But the problem is we, we, we never tend to think of what happens on the other side of that roadblock, do we? But do you realize, like, 
everything on the other side of that roadblock is, is a lot bigger chunk of the pie than everything that comes before it. Do you get that? Death is a thief, but death is not final. Christ conquered death. And as long as we're here, we can trust that God will take care of us and give us precisely what we need. Maybe not, maybe not everything we want, but that's why we need contentment. That's why we need contentment. Solomon had to learn to be content with the facts of the matter, what he observed to be the case, being counterintuitive not being what they, they should have been. He had to rest in the knowledge that God is sovereign. And y'all, it is infinitely better to live a life enjoying the blessings that are from the hand of God rather than spending your life asking what's in the other hand. We can't be sure what tomorrow will bring, but we can be sure that God is going to bring us closer to him we can be sure of that. It's got to be enough. It's got to be enough for us. If you hold Jesus in your heart today, you can know he holds all of your tomorrows. Everyone. That's the assurance that we have. And it's good. It's not easy. But it's good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you that you are sovereign and we are not. It uh, should be a relief. All of us as Christians know that without you, we have no hope. What we struggle to believe is that with you, we do have hope. That's the part that we forget. God, I pray that you would help our unbelief this morning. Encourage your people, strengthen your church, glorify your name. And God, be pleased to do it with us. In Jesus' name, amen.